are listening to the ETC Group podcast. What kind of system of knowledge considers it a good idea to try to manipulate the whole climate of an entire planet? For our second of two episodes on geoengineering, ETC Group's Drew Jay spoke to Tom Goldtooth, who is the executive director of the Indigenous Environmental Network and, as of recently, an etc. group board member, about the meaning of colonization and what is called decolonization and on Indigenous perspectives on geoengineering. We're here with Tom Goldtooth from the Indigenous Environmental Network. Welcome, Tom. Hello. Welcome. Glad to be here. Could you start by just saying a few words about the views of Indigenous communities you work with and what the, the views that they have about geoengineering? Well, first of all, I'm with the Indigenous Environmental Network, and we've been around since 1990. And uh, our network was formed by what we call our traditional peoples, our traditional communities, our traditional families. What does that mean? It means those First Nations uh, tribal members. It means those American Indian and Alaska Native tribal members who are still doing everything they can to hold on to their language, to hold on to their ceremonial way of life, to respect the teachings and the original instructions as was passed on to their tribes and to all of our tribes. I want to say this because we are, as uh, indigenous peoples, that's another terminology that uh, we're more comfortable using within our network because we are indigenous to these lands and territories of both Canada and United States. And uh, it's a little more deeper than Aboriginal terminology, okay? So we are indigenous. We are, we are the original peoples of uh, this northern hemisphere called North America. It recognizes uh, part of this discussion, I think, for the audience is, is one of the symptoms of colonization. And that symptom is internalized oppression that we have learned the ways of the oppressor so that we, in a weird way, we start to oppress our own. Part of that internalized oppression is uh, kind of a love-hate relationship with the, with the colonizers, with the settlers. But at the same time, it, it triggers our people into in frustrations and anger. But when it comes to, you know, these issues of, of progress, quote-unquote, of Western forms of development, the way that uh, colonizers came and, and put a different way of looking at trees and water and natural resources in a, in a property right perspective. In many areas of the history of uh, settlers coming into our territories was the surveyors first. Surveyors came in and with these little little instruments, you know, and uh, started put markers uh, in our back 40. Uh, they were already plotting out our lands and territories leading up to a property right and ownership of land regime, okay? So 
that's why I need to talk about this because that's the view from the shore as indigenous peoples within our network. And I think there's a, a high percentage of our people that are proud of what we've done to renegotiate uh, agreements and contracts of the extraction of these minerals and uh, negotiating more money per barrel of, of oil or more money for the tonnage of coal that comes out uh, so that the tribe gets substantial money, millions of dollars a year from all this. So that creates a dependency, eh? And uh, and we are participating in a, in a native indigenous red quote unquote capitalism uh, system that has that been part of our assimilation and acculturation. So I'm saying this because as indigenous peoples throughout North America, that the the impact of colonization has resulted into high levels of acculturation and assimilation. And that's why language preservation and language restoration is very critical, both in Canada and United States. Uh, we have elders that have said, you don't need to know the language because we're living the white man way now. We have to go out, you have to go out and get a job. Uh, move to Winnipeg. You know, move to Montreal, go get a job because there's no jobs here. Okay. And even some of our, uh, my mom and that generation, my dad, I mean, they said it's a right. We have a right to, to live in a good way. We, we shouldn't have to wake up in the morning here in northern Minnesota in our small little cabin and have to break ice and, and get the, the wood stove going. You know, 12 people in a little building, a little cabin. And that that's, wasn't too long ago. That was in the 50s and the 60s up here. So why I'm saying this uh, is that one has to look at the impact of also another symptom of uh, what we call internalized oppression. So we become our worst enemy when it comes to trying to make the right decision for ourselves. And to recognize that very important and critical arena that describes who we are as indigenous peoples, our values, our philosophy, our cosmology, our spiritual beliefs, our language. So all that's been challenged with us. So when we look at current technologies that are proposed, uh, there's a realm of them, but since this discussion is related specifically to to the use of of technologies that supposedly are trying to capture uh, greenhouse gases, that are trying to capture the carbon, okay, uh, that's being emitted in these fossil fuel combustion facilities. Uh, and these businesses, and a lot of them are, are um, part of the fossil fuel economy. They're part of the fossil fuel dirty energy system on how they're trying to pass upon our indigenous leadership in North America to convince us that, hey, you know, there's value to carbon capture and storage. 
carbon capture use and storage, bioenergy discussions around this as well. And uh, they say that they have technology that, and they try to blend it and match it up to our traditional teachings of respect and uh, and recognition of that uh, sacredness of Mother Earth and Father Sky, the atmosphere, the air we breathe. And for our indigenous environmental network, our constituency majority are these families who have organized groups, entities, their bodies of families coming together to talk about this. And some of this organizing that they have done the past uh, you know, 30 years, 40 years. And in the case of IEN, we were born in 1991. So IEN uh, has been working on climate change since 1998. We were mandated by youth. We were uh, elders and women societies that we need to get involved on climate change issues. We are also global. So we work with indigenous peoples in the global south. Africa, as well as South America, Central America, Southeast Asia, the Philippines, and the Sami, uh, where we also use this same approach of identifying those indigenous communities, families that still are doing everything they can to hang on to their original traditional indigenous uh, teachings and original instructions. Uh, carbon trading is the privatization of air. Before you can trade anything, you got to determine whose property right it is. Carbon trading, cap and trade, carbon offsets, carbon tax. These are all part of a colonial capitalistic uh, 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 system that privatizes the, our father's sky, our air. Uh, so that's why this question about te technologies like capturing uh, carbon. Uh, first of all, in our network, we are opposed to it. We reject it. We fight it. And uh, uh, we have communities from Alaska through Canada and United States and globally that are part of our network where we share that position. Okay. Does that speak? For other um, other uh, indigenous uh, entities around us, no. We find that a lot of our native indigenous people need information about this. They need the truth. They need popular education. Uh, some of that we need to put into our own languages. As IEN, we have studied these different forms of uh, carbon capture technologies, and we're very concerned because they're not proven. There's a lot of assumptions in, in how those technologies are effective or not. They're still experiments. But yet, we, as we and our frontline communities are battling the fossil fuel industry, we're trying to stop pipelines. We're trying to stop in the tar sands development in Canada. We're trying to stop uh, more fracking now, hydraulic uh, uh, fracturing. We're, we're trying to stop. So we're trying to stop the system. But now we're facing a problem because it's this very industry says, 
hey, we want to go green, that we're recognizing climate change now, and that we want to, they say they, they want to reduce their emissions, and they want to greenwash. And what they're using as a distraction from really doing real reduction of emissions at source, they're using these false technologies, techno fixes, and say, yeah, they're, they're saying we're putting big money into research and developing carbon capture, capture and storage. They're doing that in the tar sands. Eh? And uh, so that's why we are rejecting it because it's being used as a delay tactic, as a distraction from the, from the industry to doing what it needs to do is keep fossil fuels in the ground. That's decolonization, is keeping fossil fuels in the ground. The other thing about technologies, we're very, our, our communities we work with are traditional, so we're very critical on technologies. What are the protocols and indigenous ethics when we talk about the, the sacredness of Mother Earth, you know, and even, even the perception of how technology draws out that liquid, that gas, that breath, within Mother Earth, and that's violating the sacredness of Mother Earth already. And I hear there are areas to where they want to put the, the waste back into the Earth. They want to put capture carbon and liquefied or even whatever technologies and like a straw, put it back into the Earth, you know, and then gain an offset from that. And Mother Earth is so alive, and, and, and she shifts. There's fractures and fissures in the uh, Mother Earth. And while the government or the fossil fuel companies get a benefit now, an offset uh, by, by capturing it and whatever process of the, what they do from there with it, by capturing it, storing it, in this case, in the Mother Earth, who's to say the next month or four years or 12, 20 years later that there's something happening and then that gas re is released. What, what are the assurances? What is the mechanisms for monitoring? What are the mechanisms for assessing all this? And is it going to be the fossil fuel or the government who's invested in fossil fuel going to monitor itself? then what is the capacity of our own communities to also be involved in the system? So these are big questions. Ethically, we are against these technologies. It violates our the, the, the sacred teachings, our cosmology. It violates it. So uh, that's how we look at it right now. Uh, even the other technologies with the atmosphere, with the sun rays, with the solar the different layers that uh, are around our Mother Earth. There's teachings and all that that are in the indigenous science of our traditional indigenous peoples, our spiritual leaders uh, that still understand that sacred knowledge of all these natural laws from an indigenous perspective when we talk about the atmosphere, the layers around the earth, the stratosphere, and how there is danger on how we as humans feel that we can develop technologies on controlling the rays of the sun.
of course, these were are all affected by the combustion of greenhouse gases. We know that, uh, but we feel that indigenous knowledge has not been incorporated for mitigating climate change. So you've touched on a lot of different things here, but I just wonder if you could get into a little more detail on on sort of what what indigenous communities have been doing to resist uh, carbon dioxide removal specifically, and if there's if there are communities in your network that are experience that either are experiencing or could experience the sort of direct impact of those technologies. Well, like I said, uh, in our analysis and and as part of developing our organizing strategies, eh, is that number one is that we have to, we have to shut down the industry and we have to be advocates on developing policies on a just transition away from that, okay? That's the number one contributor to the situation we're in with this climate crisis. The root cause, of course, to this fossil fuel economy is capitalism, okay? So we got to address the issues of capitalism as well. How do we do that in the belly of the beast of the United States and its younger brother, Canada? It's challenging. So now there's a lot of emphasis on how, where is indigenous knowledge on removing carbon, removing greenhouse gases, you know, methane, other gases? That's an interesting question. And uh, I normally have said in these kind of situations in the past is, don't put that on our shoulders, okay? People always gravitate, well, indigenous knowledge is going to save us. But at the same time, there's this big black snake it clouds the the mine it 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 slitters across turtle island the pipeline the tar sands the pulling out of oil even looking at natural gas fracking now how do we practice a certain indigenous knowledge to try to address that issue i know that there's been a lot of a, a recognition now on the importance of of uh, conservation and restoring uh, forests, trees, wetlands, restoration. There's a lot of emphasis now to support agriculture. And they talk a lot about soils, okay? I understand, and our communities understand the importance to, by practicing our traditional farming uh, agricultural ways, how that uh, allows the, the retention of the carbon in the soil, how planting trees is part of a solution. Uh, we've always supported, you know, that the importance of maintaining a sacred ecosystem in our forest lands. There's a lot of terminology of trees and the different families and species of trees. And it wasn't until we experienced clear cut, clear cut. And you look at Fort Francis north of me and uh, on the can- Canadian side of the border. I mean, it's been devastated. Pop and paper mills, Fort Paper. So now there's an encouragement to, uh, to, to restore forests, to restore wetlands, to restore, and also to include farmers now. That's fine. But in our network, we say that that's fine, but keep it outside of a market system, okay? Now, part of the matrix, I'm talking about 
a matrix of World Bank, financial institutions, investors, national, provincial, state banks, uh, industry, polluting industry. Now they're starting to use the soil, soil carbon as part of a, a carbon trading mechanism. So woven into our fight as ETC, I'm a board member now of ETC, uh, against geoengineering is that it also cross-cuts into the financialization of nature phenomena, okay? Now it's becoming the same. It's bundled together. The technologies of carbon capture use and storage in California is being used as part of the tax system, okay? So we're cautious on how we utilize our indigenous traditional knowledge uh, for addressing the carbon that's out there in our soils and the trees. Uh, we don't want to have it uh, taken over um, by corporations and banks. We lose our rights to it because at the end of the day of this push towards biodiversity and conservation offsets, the offsets regime, they... Even I understand Manitoba and Saskatchewan have already been inventoried on its conservation and biodiversity as units and priced to it. And you know, I wouldn't be surprised that in addition to carbon capture technologies and the tar sands, that it's all also being part of an offset regime as well that allows the polluter to be off the hook from count from from cutting admissions at source. You know, we do advocate uh, a coming back to our our ways of producing our own food. We're, we're doing that here in, in, uh, in the prairie lands. We're doing that in the Southwest. Uh, we're advocating as part of indigenous just transition is to come back to food sovereignty, to come back to, to food as, a, as, a, as an inherent right for us to feed ourselves. And that means to grow our own food. So I could envision uh, vast areas of land where we're using our traditional seeds and, and we're practicing those ways to where we don't have to till the soil and we're retaining, we're sequestering the carbon in the soil in a natural way. That's our indigenous knowledge. But we don't want that to be utilized as part of some mitigation for climate change and some big check coming to us. And when we say, where did this money come from? Is it from the goodness of the World Bank? Is it from the goodness of a bank in Canada or some investor? And no, that money comes from the polluters who are buying those as credits, offset credits, pieces of paper, so that they can look good on on paper, that they have offset the pollution, uh, but they're still expanding the combustion of pollution. Eh? Uh, so that's why we make the link together, retaining our trees, and that's why uh, we support uh, indigenous peoples to have title to their forest lands and in, the, in, in South America. But keep it out of... Uh, the carbon offset, red, reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation regimes. And just recognize indigenous peoples. Uh, we have people we network who are traditional in the Amazon, like the Syriaku. They said, we don't need money. 
to manage our lands, just leave us alone and let us live our way, recognize our rights. And uh, so when we recognize indigenous people's rights, inherent rights to our resources, I don't like the word to use natural resources, but I'm just using that for some context here. You know, I really feel that, you know, there are still elders and people who understand what I've been talking about as far as original instructions, indigenous spiritual relationship, that if we recognize their inherent rights to their territories in Canada, in the bush, and that means rights to conserve the forest, the boreal forest, okay, that they're, they're going to protect it. Um, and, uh, and that is part of a solution, indigenous base to protect the trees who breathe and exhale, okay, the carbon, okay. Um. Uh, an author named Holly Jean Bach recently wrote an article for the Progressive International in which she, she talked about carbon dioxide removal technologies, and she referred to it in the title even as decolonizing the atmosphere, uh, removing the carbon out of the atmosphere and, and burying it underground. Is I'm just wondering what, what your reaction is when you hear that kind of equation or statement. It confuses me. It confuses me because I've come to understand this topic pretty thoroughly as an indigenous person. I consult with our spiritual leaders and we have a network of other communities that have gone through the same process. So anytime that there's, there, there, there's a, a position like that, uh, that I feel violates the sacredness of our Mother Earth. Okay. It confuses me. And it also makes me sad because it contradicts those knowledgeable, traditional, spiritual people that I know. I just didn't make up this position as a political position. This is a, a life-given issue, okay, that, re that respects the, the, the life itself that was given to us by Wakantanka, okay, the Great Spirit. So um, it doesn't make sense to me. It's not a process of decolonization. I feel that anyone who supports carbon capture and storage and the many technologies related to this, they have different te 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 terminologies, is that anyone that supports that is perpetuating colonization. Okay. We talked a lot about carbon dioxide removal, but I, I just wanted to touch a little bit on uh, on the solar geoengineering and the idea of blocking the sun uh, and you know using various techniques in order to, to kind of offset the the effects of fossil fuel driven climate change. Can you talk a little bit about your your view on solar geoengineering and how you respond to the experiments that are being proposed right now? There's Scopex right now, which they, they want to 
spray different substances into the upper atmosphere, into the stratosphere. You know, they're doing it at a very small scale, I think, in the experiment, but but the, this is explicitly to create a pathway to um, spraying tens of thousands of tons of either sulfur dioxide or some other substance into the upper atmosphere to block the sunlight from reaching the Earth um, in order to um, to cool the cool the the atmosphere. So that's that's the main one that's being proposed right now. But there's also marine cloud brightening where where they're spraying seawater into the clouds to try to make the clouds brighter so that they reflect more light back into space. So those are the two main solar geoengineering yeah. technologies that are being proposed yeah. right now. On that last one, uh, I was talking to some of the the, the coast the coastal people out in California and especially those that live around Carmel around this uh, Selena, around this area where I think there was some visioning <laughs> by the uh, perpetrators of this uh, technology. And they laughed. Yeah, they laughed. Uh, and kind of like the joke was on the white man. What are they trying to do, you know? For one thing, the oceans, talk about the oceans and water. It's both fresh water, but also oceans. There are natural laws that indigenous peoples still believe and carry with them. And those natural laws are, 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 they add up to our responsibilities and our duties to, uh, to recognize that the, the sacredness of our Mother Earth and Father Sky. They're reciprocal. You cannot separate the sky from the earth. They're one in the, they, they relate, they bond. And to us as indigenous expression, that's pretty general with all the indigenous peoples I, I meet in the north and south, especially the concept of our mother earth, is that these natural laws are part of the, the, the cre creativity principles, creation, the principles of creation. So if we as human beings disturb that natural law, and, you know, it's a question of what do we do as human beings to try to mitigate that or try to solve that problem? Do we contribute to the problem, especially on the ethical and arena of duties and responsibilities to the sacredness? How do we ask permission from the oceans to take your water and put it into a spray, okay? How do we ask permission from the sky to do this? And that's something that's part of our knowledge is the protocols, protocols that the dominant society, the industrialized world does not understand. They don't understand this. And that's what got us into this situation already of the greenhouse effect. Okay. And, it is an important question, is what is the ethical reasoning for how humans who have caused the problem to use human design technologies? Maybe, you know, there are some benefits, but for us in our network and those spiritual people that we talk to is that they have no protocols for addressing this issue. Science very often is removed from understanding that sacredness of Mother Earth that we know. We have our own scientists. There are some scientists that are right on. They come to our ceremonies. 
you know, they understand what I'm talking about, but they're very few. Okay. So same with solar, radiation. Uh, some of our spiritual leaders have language for that. Some of that is sacred language, not the common people language. The effects, recognizing light and how light travels. Recognizing the concepts of energy. Wakantanka, I use that word, the great spirit, Wakantanka. That's about energy. Okay? So we have understanding that is deep, profound knowledge around science, indigenous science. So we say that the technology, as we understand that you mentioned, with manipulating the atmosphere, the different layers and levels. There's different levels of worlds, we believe, between here and the stars. What does that mean? Then when we have spiritual leaders at just different worlds, different layers of worlds. So what are the protocols for manipulation of that? Okay. We brought this up with some of the indigenous people in Arizona, some of the tribal members of the tribes around Tucson. Um, that didn't know anything about this proposed technology. But when you break it down, and they're even using some business in Tucson that has high-altitude aircrafts, you know, or balloons. I think it was balloons. They even wanted to know more about that, you know. And what right do they have to go up there, <laughs> you know? Uh, and... Uh, many of them are farm farmer people. And we talked to some of the Livia Campesina people and uh, the farmers. They're really concerned on the impact of this type of experimentation on the weather, impacts to the weather. They said, how do they know that this is not, not going to affect the weather on the other end of the spectrum? Is it going to make it better or worse in another way? And I, 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 I had to say... Uh, yeah, they should be doing uh, environmental impact statements, you know. And uh, that's another problem, too. Environmental assessments, you know. They, they usually end up pursuing, uh, approving development. They use EIS just as a tool for engagement. Uh, but they always end up with three scenarios, and it goes forward. Uh, we don't have much faith in an environmental impact statements, but uh, but we do need to be involved. We do advocate for that. ETC needs to be advocating involvement in these technologies and assessment of the impacts, definitely. But uh, those are questions that the people were asking. Right off the bat, it violated the sacredness of our understanding of protecting our Mother Earth and Father Sky. So. Um... We're almost out of time, but uh, but I just wanted to ask you if you could speak directly to the to the people who are putting forward these experiments or who are working on the sort of carbon dioxide removal technologies. Uh, what would you say to them? I think those people need to reevaluate their relationship to the sacredness of Mother Earth and Father Sky. Thank you, Tom Goldtooth. Thank you. You have been listening to the ETC Group podcast. 
For more about ETC Group, visit etcgroup.org. Thank you for listening.